Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. Um, before we get started, just wanted to remind people that you can find us, as always, on StuffWe'veSeen.com. And you can also find us on Instagram. And yes, believe it or not, we are on TikTok. Uh, and it's at Stuff We've Seen Jim A. Don't ask me. It just shortened <laughs> our moniker. Um, and uh, you're going to find a bevy of videos to enjoy, or or at least one. Um, <laughs> There's one for now. But, you know, we're, we're trying to get in with this uh, Gen Z crowd. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's my, by the way, that's my social media manager, uh, Teal. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm, I'm up with the uh, social media. I've been, uh, uh, I've been memeing some tweets. Yeah, I'm waiting, I'm waiting and waiting for you to uh, go crazy on TikTok, but I haven't seen any videos yet. I've been working on some. So one, one of the issues I'm having, <laughs> sorry, my, minor thing here. One of the issues I'm having is the shape of a movie screen does not really translate well to the shape of a phone screen. No, you got to think in VHS terms, pan and scan, baby. <laughs> Yeah. So anyhow, I'm learning some pan and scan with the old uh, Ken Burns there. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, look forward to that. You know, I, I'm sure all our <laughs> devoted listeners are big TikTok uh, fans, <laughs> but maybe we'll get a new audience if we ever get those videos up there. Uh, okay. So look, uh, people of Earth. We are going to talk specifically about a theme um, that we've been interested in uh, for the past, I don't know, month or so. And yeah. I think it's an important subject, uh, especially as throughout the world, uh, something that we thought was mostly dead and buried is, seems to be rising back, and that is uh, fascism. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how exactly, I, I, I don't know how this transition to fascism happened in terms of, you know, what I'm binging, but... Uh, after a month of horror films in October, I was looking through my notes, and the, the last movie I watched was uh, Halloween Ends, and then the next one after that was one of these fascism films, like The Next Day. And so I... Th <laughs> this is how it kind of started, where I think that you'd been thinking about these movies, and yeah. then it just coincided with me talking about something is that, uh, and we haven't talked about this one on the show, uh, but my uh, wife and my oldest son, and he's a big history guy, uh, we watched, I believe it's on Netflix, they uh, premiered. Uh, the new German version of All Quiet That's on the right. Western Front, uh, which is World War One, um, and it's a real—it's yeah. always been an anti-war book, and uh, at all the movies was very anti-war, and it really shows yeah. like, you know the horror of war and the kind of stupidity of war, the senselessness of trench warfare, and how generals they themselves they just didn't really they looked at the people in the trenches as just little like you know pieces of meat that were there for the slaughter. Yeah. And they didn't care. Uh, it was about something else for them, winning something at all costs, uh, which just amps up the tragedy. Yeah. And, no, I think that triggered me a little bit to start. Uh, sorry, you used the word trigger, but it <laughs> inspired me to uh, to think about uh, coming off a month of horror. I, I kind of wanted something. A lot of horror, I feel like, is fantasy horror. 
And that's fine because it's we're safe in the theater when we're watching it, right? Or or watching it at home. Michael Myers is not a real thing, and, right. and we know that. So we have, as an audience, we we have some safety in knowing that it's a fantasy. We can get scared and freaked out, but we know that like Michael Myers is not going to be waiting for us at home. And so I started after you watched that, and we're talking about the, sort of the violence and the horrors of war. I kind of thought I want something that takes violence a little more seriously, that it, that addresses the real threats of violence in our society, and maybe war is the way to go with that. So, yeah, I think fascism kind of came into our conversation through this idea of non-fantasy terror. Yeah, and then went through our little discussions via text. What I revealed to you was that this was – I was like – this is an interesting genre that I'm all on board with because yeah. over the years, I have seen a lot of these movies because the subject fascinates me. And and I guess it's because, well, we can't, we can't go back in time to experience what was it like to, to live through America in the 30s and yeah. Europe in the 20s and 30s. Um, and of course, my brain was going on this because it, it, the World War One, the, the war to end all wars, when that ended is when the start of all the trouble that led to World War II began. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And you'll see notes of that in in the end of All Quiet on the Western Front. You get a clear understanding of how that war ended and yeah. why there are people in Germany that were not happy with the way that resulted. And Italy. And Italy. And so what I've always been fascinated, because I can't go back in time, is that, well, what are what movies – uh, American and European, or, or even uh, Japanese, might offer me windows of a what yeah. was it like back then, or stories that talked about the rise of fascism, or World War II stories that aren't war movies. You know, like ba 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 ba. I think that's a really important distinction, though, is that there was a lot. There's a lot. There's a ton of war movies that are about soldiers in combat. And there's fewer movies that are about, say, the home front or uh, what was going on in Europe pre-war or how Hollywood started to deal with with movies before America got involved in the war. Well, we'll, we'll think about it, right? In America, well, we weren't in Europe. And so what you heard is really what you got from the radio and you got from newspapers. And mostly newspapers, if you wanted any real news, you'd have to read because you know, radio programs. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of propaganda going on in the U.S. And if you're a filmmaker in America, that wasn't somebody that, say, escaped Europe and came over because there were a lot of filmmakers that did that before things got really bad in Europe and they couldn't escape. You weren't getting those stories. And even afterwards, what was hot in Hollywood was we had all these soldiers returning and, you know, they wanted to safely relive the experience where America comes on top. It's very propagandist of like, you know, yeah. the heroes and trying to honor our soldiers in a way that made them feel good about what they did over there. Right. And yeah, that was... Uh so you had to go to Europe if you wanted to have any any sense. You had to have those filmmakers there after the war who might have lived through some of that and see what what were their perspective or what stories were they telling. Yeah, and I think the film I kind of want to start by talking about 
Because so when what happened is that I've seen a whole bunch of these movies and I was throwing a whole bunch out at you, but yeah. you started it off with a movie that I honestly hadn't even ever heard of the name, and I was already intrigued by the fact that there was one out there that I didn't even know about. And you yeah. first watched, and then I to start my journey said, "Oh, I'll watch that next," and and I was uh, amazed because it was something that came out in 1940. Yeah. And it's by a very famous director that most people would never hear the name is Frank Borzege. Yes. He is the first du- director who win, won an Oscar, by the way. Yeah. And you were talking uh, just a minute ago about the filmmakers who were in Europe. But th- what's interesting is this movie, The Mortal Storm, is what we're talking about uh, from 1940, starring Jimmy Stewart. This was made by Warner Brothers. And the Warner Brothers themselves had escaped pogroms in Europe as children. or One of them was born in the U.S., one of them was four, and their parents had escaped pogroms in, U- in Europe. They were Jewish, and they came to America, and they were terrified by what they saw going on in Europe in the 30s. And more than any other studio, they specifically started making anti-fascist movies in the 30s. And there's like six or seven of them, really. There's a few others. And The Mortal Storm was one of these where they were very aware of what was going on. And it was, at the time, the production code basically encouraged, (laughs) using the word encouraged, (laughs) encouraged Hollywood to remain neutral in the war. And this was during, you know, while uh, Lindbergh was doing his whole America First thing, And there's a very interesting story, which we'll get into in a future show when we watch this film, but Sergeant York was involved with the Warner Brothers in making his story, and he was a non-interventionist, and through his relationship with the Warner Brothers, became an interventionist. By the way, it's it's been years since I've seen it. Um, I know the story very well, but have you seen Sergeant York? Yes, but not for years. Right. And that's Gary Cooper. He won an Oscar. Yeah. And not only was a pastor, I think he was a Quaker, right? The real side of New York. And he, you know, didn't want, he wanted to be non-objective observer or whatever. Yeah, Something like yeah. that. Like he was a pacifist and he didn't want to he was a pacifist, carry a gun. Yeah. And again, I don't know, the, you know, the real story versus how it became Hollywoodized uh, and, and legend is that without firing a shot, he was able to capture an entire German Yes. regiment and he became a huge hero and he was really anti-war we'll, we'll watch this movie and we'll get into it later but what's interesting about the story is that his views on world war ii really changed because of his relationship with the warner brothers interesting yeah and so they started the the code said stay non-interventionist we're not getting involved in this and the warner brothers said no we're getting involved in this we are going to get political and they made this movie, The Mortal Storm. Yeah. Now, when you had said, you know, that they were they were invested in the 30s of making um, anti-fascist stories, yeah. they were probably thinly veiled. They were probably about one thing, but you could read it another way. This movie, The Mortal Storm, takes the subject head on. But the interesting thing is it, came, it was shot in 1939 to come out in 1940. But by the time it came out, Hitler had already started invading Europe. And so what they thought might be a warning 
it was already now people were realizing what the danger was for a lot of people. Again, if you think about the conflicts in other countries now that we don't even know about or we don't know much about, that's the way, you know, America was even more so in the dark. Yeah. And so this movie takes place in Germany in 1933 in a small college town. It's on the German border, but it's in Germany. They escaped to Switzerland. Yeah. And uh, so it, it takes place in 1933 and was shot in 1939 and is based on a book. So this is a very quick turnaround of this story about what was going on in Germany during this, you know, between, say, 1933 and 1935. Then somebody writes a book. Then they make the movie. By the time the movie comes out, Hitler has invaded Poland and the war is starting. And so in a way, this movie came out a year late and was kind of dated, is I think what you're saying. And it is... It's almost a propaganda film. I mean, you could go as far as, yeah, I I, I could, I I think you could say it is an anti-Nazi propaganda film. It is pretty much on a scene-by-scene basis, anti-fascist, anti-Nazi. I mean, there's really not a scene in this movie that isn't about that in one way or another. I think when you like talk about propaganda, it's, I don't want to say it's simplistic, but it makes its arguments pretty bold. And yes. the, this, the, you know, the stereotypes and the tropes are all in there. However, even though we're talking about a movie that is, what, 82 years old now. Yeah. There's still something effective about it uh, because Again, knowing that it was not like a movie that came out in 1950 trying to talk about what was going on in Germany. This is 1940. It's in the now. And it makes people who are like – I always hear that argument sometimes from people who don't really know their history and go, well, you know – people didn't really understand what was happening. And I'm like, well, clearly they did actually. Clearly they did. If you watch this movie, it's pretty clear. And I think I've I've been trying to research this and I, but there's a scene in this movie. uh, It's about a professor in this small college town. First of all, just so people know, this professor is played by Frank Morgan, who, if they're like, I don't know who that is. Well, he was the Wizard of Oz. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, so he is, uh, I think, a biology professor. It's uh, he's in the he's in the sciences, the physical sciences, anyway, and he's a professor at this college, and he's greatly beloved. And the movie starts off on his birthday, and he's got these two stepsons. Uh, he's been re- remarried to this uh, German woman. And they adore him and all the students and the faculty adore him and they give him an award at the beginning of the movie. And then they all sit down for his birthday dinner, him and his family. And at some point during the dinner, uh, one of the friends of the sons gets up and turns on the radio and comes back and says, great news, Hitler has been declared chancellor. And you immediately see on the faces of the people at the table that there are different reactions to this. Yeah, all the young students and friends, they're all excited. Yes, except for the Jimmy Stewart character who comes right out and says- because he's Jimmy Stewart. He's always going to be the moral conscience. <laughs> he is. And it was weird when I first started watching the movie, I was thinking, is Jimmy Stewart going to turn into a Nazi? What's going on here? Well, that, that's ridiculous, Teal. 
because <laughs> you see, but, fascism, <laughs> fa- fa- fascism is a thing that you don't want to be a part of because then it takes your spirit away and it takes your choice away and you don't have freedom. <laughs> That's not what these people believe. They want to believe in, in, in things that are not scientifically sound. You want your science. <laughs> I just love him so much, though. Like, he, you buy him as a moral authority. Yeah, and but he also is somebody who at the beginning says, I don't want to get involved in politics. I'm just a farmer. Right. And so there's this discussion at this birthday dinner about whether they should even talk about politics at the dinner table. And is that spoiling things? And it just, it struck me. Well, then the argument, those uh, students are already like, well, you have to, this is the new way. This is going to be, a, this is right. going to change everything. So you, this is politics. It's not something that you can avoid anymore. Exactly. And you're either with us or against us. And that was happening already, right? It was happening already. And, and the thing about this scene is that it immediately struck me really hard as a reminder of some family dinners I've had over the last decade. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what I think is great. So I, I dip into the past to see parallels to the present. Yeah, but it horrified me. And so in a way, you know, yes, this movie is is kind of corny and it's obvious and it hits its points really hard, but it horrified me and it got under my skin because even though it's sometimes simplistic in its arguments, they were so relevant to what's been going on in my family over the last decade. And these same dinner table arguments about, you know, people saying, let's not talk about politics. Well, we have to. This is the new way. And, you know, this is going to make Germany great again. And this is going to make America great again. Whatever. Right. But those arguments have played out. So that as a whole, this movie terrified me. See, that's what's so fantastic, though, right? Here's a movie that, again, 1940, production code, dated, a little bit over the top in some areas, and yet at its core, it's so effective. It's so effective because these are really not just relevant to what's going on in the U.S., but there is a rise of right-wing authoritarianism worldwide right now. And we see this in Poland. We see this in Hungary. We see this even in Sweden, where these parties are getting more power uh, in their parliaments, Venezuela even, Brazil. And so we can look around the world, and these same conversations are happening over family dinners uh, around the world right now. And what's great about this movie is we see this family uh, basically destroyed over the course of the film by politics and by taking these sides. But beyond politics, though, they're also being torn apart by ideologies. Yeah, I guess that no, that's the better word is ideology and the total commitment to that ideology. And what's interesting is that the father character basically stays apolitical through the whole film, and he's he ends up being taken and put in a concentration camp. And I think this is the first Hollywood depiction of a concentration camp. It's it's really just one shot that you see it. The mother goes to visit him. He's arrested and taken away to this this camp. She goes to visit him and she's walking in through this sort of barbed wire tunnel and you see people doing hard labor in the background. And I think that's probably the first depiction of this in a Hollywood movie. And maybe in any movie. 
and that you know non-documentary and she goes to visit him and she says what you know just give this up just tell them what they want to hear and you can get out of here and he says i can't and it's and it's not because of his ideology or his politics it's because he believes in scientific truth he says, I, I'm a stubborn old guy, and I believe in scientific truth, and I will continue to argue in favor of science. And science is a threat to German fascism. Knowledge, right? So books and, and yeah. learning. And, and of course, the, the science that they're talking about, and it's kind of funny, but but yet sad because this is this is again when we think about I'll use the word QAnon right and the alternative facts and believing yes. in things that just couldn't possibly be true but it's part of this new ideology is that German wanted to you know go on this whole Aryan idea of the ideal Superman and part of that theory was that their blood was superior to a Jew and yeah. one of the arguments in science I mean it was saying that there was no difference in the blood which completely differed from what the Reichstag was putting out saying right and and so truth was a threat you know one of the things on that concentration camp which again you know I I've, I've read a lot and, and watched a lot of films so I have a little bit more grasp of this than maybe some people might not understand understand that these concentration camps, I think people think of the death camps that came a little bit later, though they were already starting to happen, though most yeah. most people in Germany didn't know about it at the time. However, in the early days of Hitler coming to power, one of the things that they started to do was removing these threats. They were removing professors. Yes. They were removing other people that were smarter <laughs> than the average bear that they felt was a threat to their power, and they were um, bringing them to the Gestapo. Some of them were just murdered, never seen from again, or they were moved into some kind of labor camp, some early version. So what Mortal Storm you know, shows and is not necessarily an incorrect depiction. Um, it may be a little bit of like the best of what they knew, but think about this. If most of America and and other parts of the world didn't know about the death camps that were happening uh, starting in like 1942 yeah. in Germany um, and the early exterminations that were happening in like setting up in like 39 to 42, there were kind of two phases, which again, in this journey, I've watched the nine-hour show of, right. and, and it got a good detail. But to think about this, in 1940, clearly – America was aware that concentration camps of one form or another were happening. Yeah. And I think that was the fascinating part. Yeah. Well, yeah. So they didn't necessarily know about mass killing uh, in, well, in this movie anyway. That's not depicted. But these forced labor camps are definitely depicted. And this, <laughs> I mean, it's just fascinating, this movie, because it really hits every point that we knew about uh, Nazism at that time. And there there was not an ignorance about it. Uh, it was not, oh, we didn't really know what Hitler was up to. No, we knew. This is a major Hollywood movie. It was not some obscure piece of information coming from uh, a weird little source. No, this is this is mainstream Hollywood entertainment. Now, I did look up a review on this yeah. in 1940, and the New York Times, the famous critic Bosley Crowther, and yeah. he was at the you know the starting to the rise of the peak of his powers as a film critic, and he loved this movie. 
I guess he was always a champion of uh, anti-fascism. Okay. He was also a big proponent for not censoring things. He hated censorship. Oh, interesting. Um, he liked movies like Citizen Kane and other films that actually dealt with subject matter the, of things that were really going on today. Right. You know, he was very much against the um, Committee for Un-American Activities. Which was a little later, yeah. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, it was starting, if you think about it. I guess that's true, yeah. Well, I don't want to, so this is something that's interesting, because you had mentioned this movie, well, we broke our last episode into two parts so that we could talk about Tar Second, but you you mentioned this movie that I hadn't seen at the time, but now I've seen it, and it was Amsterdam. And Amsterdam takes place in what, 1933? Yeah, it's it's in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, 1934. And so the the movie isn't that great. It it's it, it's I I think it's better than it, than than it's been led on to believe, but it's not that great. But it has a fascinating kind of uh, throughput of a story in that when we're talking about what was going on in Europe, well, what was going on in America, when we talk about capitalism, it's not quite the same as fascism or Nazism, but there's a tie in there because industrialists yeah. were very attracted to the fascist movements happening in Europe because they saw consolidation of power. And of course, yes. the industrialists in America were very, very powerful and they liked power. And so FDR was a big threat to that. And there was a true attempt to create a coup in the United States and remove FDR and his cabinet from power by force. And while this movie is not, uh, Amsterdam is not like, you know, directly in the weeds of it. That's sort of the backdrop for the movie. Yeah, it, it fashions a kind of a fiction story around that plot. But it's interesting in that what I read is that there was a, Committee on Un-American Activities, <laughs> and that's Absolutely. who the general went to in order to reveal this plot. And so that was already in 1934. What happened is that the Committee on Un-American Activities evolved from worries about fascists and Nazis trying to take over the country, right. and it morphed more into the well, communist and think about it is probably influenced by big capitalists yeah. who were very fearful of workers gaining huge power in the United States and the influence that FDR was having in trying to yes. inject change. And what's interesting is that during the 30s, and the business plot was sort of, you know, these industrialists saying, look at that Mussolini guy and what he's doing with his industrialist. That looks kind of cool. We should try that. Is sort of this marriage of corporate and government power uh, in the interest of the nation. And so the Hollywood movies, particularly Warner Brothers, was sort of anti-fascist. Then we got involved in the war. And during the war, Hollywood made basically pro-interventionist, pro-military you know, pro America, but it, but they were basically war movies. They weren't as much about fascism as just about Germany is bad and we must beat them. And then after that, a lot of Hollywood started making anti-communist movies. And what's fascinating about this is nobody hated the communists more than Mussolini and Hitler. Right. You know, uh, which brings up a whole other thing here, which I think we should just address quickly, even though we don't have to get too deep into the weeds on it, 
is fascism is a little hard to define. There's a lot of argument over what the definition is and what constitutes, particularly in today's world, what constitutes fascism. Everyone calls people they don't like fascist. It's become just sort of this catch-all pejorative for a kind of authoritarianism. And it's a little more complicated than that. Fascism has become a catch-all where yes. I think people think, oh, fascists are Nazis. Nazis are fascists. And there's similarities. And it really is that the Nazi party was Germany. Fascist party was Italy. Yes, The ideology was very similar. And when the two met and came to an agreement in 1938, yeah. Hitler and Mussolini, that's when the two ideologies started to mesh with Germany already having its eyes on Italy, thinking that long-term they would just they would yeah. just become another piece of Hitler's puzzle. They started to shift fascism to their will and kind of forced Italy to adopt all of their measures. Yes, absolutely. And But they were very similar ideologically with the difference that a lot of fascism has to do with hierarchy and obedience to the state obedience to the state well or not necessarily obedience but willful surrender to the state which is a little different yes right it's basically saying the state is everything you will benefit from the state as the state allows but really you should sacrifice your being because you're not as important as the state Exactly. The state, the, the group is more important. And the word fascism is actually derived from a Latin word, which means bundle of sticks. Right. And the idea is that as the bundle, each stick on its own is breakable. But when you tie them all together, there's strength. And that's sort of a good description of fascism is the state is everything. The individual is the state, the church is the state, the industry is the state, and the people are all homogenous in a way. Everyone is on board. And what you do with the people that are not on board is different from, it depends, you know, Hitler and Mussolini had different ways of dealing with the people that are not on board versus, well, I don't know, I won't get into modern examples. But, well, which by, but by the way, though, in this, in this uh, bundle of sticks example, if you happen to be a weak stick, they're not going to let you be part of that bundle. They're going to get rid of you and to burn you. Absolutely. Yes. No, because it's all absolutely. Yeah. If you're a weak stick or a crooked stick or a stick that doesn't want it, you know, and Mortal Storm makes this point that one of the big threats here is freedom of thought. And there's this scene in a restaurant. There's a scene in the restaurant where Jimmy Stewart gets together with his old friends and they were all great friends. And then Nazism came along and they, their friendship sort of is on the outs. They have a little falling out over Nazism, but they get together this one night in this restaurant. Jimmy Stewart's going to sit down at the table with them and they say, oh, you're joining us at the table. Well, I hope that means you're joining us in more ways than one. Yeah, you're going to finally join the Nazi party. You're going to find. And so you see that, like, there's this other angle to, to fascism, which is peer pressure and this idea that you sort of conform to what your friends are doing. And don't you want to be part of the in crowd? And having drinks in this bar, and then a group of Nazis come in and say, well, let's sing a German song. And this old professor says uh, he doesn't want to sing the, the Nazi song that they're all singing. 
it's not the main character professor. It's a different guy who's a former teacher of the, these this group of friends. And he says, I don't want to sing. And sure, he says, surely a man should be free to sing or not sing as he pleases. And they take him outside and beat the crap out of him. And so the idea of independent thought or freedom of choice or just doing uh, or choosing not to take part in that is a threat to them that they need to meet with violence. And that scene, the other scene that just popped into my head is they take this woman and they're going to torture her to find out where Jimmy Stewart is gone because he's escaped to Austria uh, or to Switzerland. And so they take this woman and they have her back in this same restaurant. And there's a shot that pans across. Wait, but time out. Actually, isn't it Austria? And that's sort of like the irony because in a few years. Yes, it is Austria. Yeah, because Austria wasn't going to be safe. But that's sort of the ultimate irony of the fact that escaping to Austria only buys some time. Yeah. But the characters wouldn't know that. But the characters wouldn't know that exactly. And so, yes, it is Austria. And they're going on like cross-country skis into Austria across the mountain pass. Did did you see the part where they actually pass the family Von Trapp? The family Von Trapp is on the way to Switzerland. They wave to them on their way to Austria. That's why you got confused. No? (laughs) Um, So anyhow, the shot in the restaurant is panning across the patrons at the restaurant who are sitting at their tables, and you hear this woman being tortured or at least being interrogated. uh, But you don't see what's going on with her. It's behind this closed door, pans across the patrons, and they're all just eating, kind of going about their business, sort of ignoring the fact that there's a Nazi torture interrogating this woman in the next room and you can hear her screaming and these people are just going about their business well i don't think they're going about their their, what they're doing is they are minding their own business because they know that any reaction they're next and that's that fear that was coming in and it ties in to when frank morgan's wife visits him at the concentration camp and she just wants him to like say whatever they want because already that fear is coming in that well, I just want, you know, everybody, if you just, just go, go along, along with it, you'll be okay. And I think that, you know, there was multiple steps in the Nazi plan to to engulfing a nation. And I think that's why when we look at these movies, I think uh, several years ago, we could have watched some of these films and we would have looked at them differently. But now we have, like it or not, we have lived through events in the past. Yes. And I say 20 years, like when we talked about, I, I think that the starting point of the rise of fascism in Europe started the moment that the armistice was signed in World War One. That's like a moment Absolutely. that yes. happened. Now, the rise of fascist tendencies in the world today, they all have a starting point. And it was 21 years ago, and it was September 11th, 2001. That event- well, well, I think yes, that event, yeah. okay, I, I, it I'll was a catalyst yeah. for a change in the United States, and it became a little bit more fear-based. It became a little bit more nationalized than the policies that came in. And again, a lot of other things have gone on that have shaped what's happened, but I really do feel like that moment changed the world. It was never quite the same Absolutely. again. and. Yeah. I think that, for instance, like Fox News, it was going along for several years. However, right, it, it became really... a powerhouse thanks to 9-11 and then the events of the beginning of the Iraq war. Well, and it brought in really in, in a 
profound way this again this fear uh the fear of the other that is somehow a threat to our traditional civilization right and a big part of fascism is recalling this mythic past yes where things were great in the past and it doesn't even matter uh if the past is real or not goebbels actually says this right will make America great again, right? So that's the question. When was it when was it great in the eyes of the people who believe it needs to be made great again? <laughs> yeah, and and, and, and the <laughs> idea and, and the thing is it doesn't even matter whether that's a literal thing, right? It's an idea or a, an idealized version of this mythic past, and it doesn't matter if it's real. It's just sort of a concept, but it's a concept of a sort of hierarchy of a homogenous country that's then threatened by the foreign. And in this case, specifically by Muslims and immigrants and so on and so forth. And that, I think, probably around the same time, that became more of a concern in Western Europe also. And we see this all over Western Europe now, where there are the rise of these white wing parties because of Muslim immigration, not and and mind you, not because you know Muslims are, are immigrating there. That isn't the problem. It is the hatred, yes, that yes, that that people well, have uh, of the immigration, and that of course we have our own immigration that people dislike here in the United States, and that's seen as a threat to this mythic past. There's an. <laughs> Okay, I'm not going to spin off on this other film, Black Legion, right now, but you should watch it. Okay. Uh, audience, like I said, when we, we, we sit down, we don't do a whole pre-show trying to figure out how we're going to do the show. <laughs> we don't know what we're going to get through. Um, and that's why we feel like this is a topic, not as a one-off, but as a series. And this is maybe yeah. the first in the series. And I don't know. We had three main movies we were going to talk about today, but well, we didn't know to, how it was let's going. Start, let's know. start talking about our next one. Let's talk about Special Day. Okay, now I had mentioned earlier, and that was, of course, your cue to pivot, and you did not. Um, yeah. <laughs> I had mentioned Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, in 1938, they cemented their pact, and yes. Hitler came to Italy, and it was a huge, momentous occasion. And everywhere in Italy, every radio covered it, and there was fanfare parades, there was rallies, and people in the community. I mean, again, it wasn't like, oh, in 1938, this moment happened, and then everything changed. No, everything was changing right. leading up to key moments. Yeah, and this was a key moment, this, this allyship between Germany and Italy. The two great leaders meeting and shaking hands in a very theatrical way. And, you know, that's another interesting part about fascism that we see in a lot of these movies is sort of the theatricality of fascism. Symbolism from the uniforms to the decor yes. to the ceremonies. And, of course, this is the only moment, if I'm, if I'm correct, that the two were photographed and filmed together, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were, I think they met other times, maybe. I, I, don't, I don't really know all the deals, but. But this wasn't just a meeting. This was a nationwide celebration, a huge party. And the premise of the movie is that, well, the movie starts off with this newsreel footage of this event and sort of this broad view of here's what's going on in Italy and everyone's going crazy about it. And, and several of these movies start off with newsreel footage, which I think is interesting and sort of gives the historical context and reality to the conceit. 
And then this movie takes place entirely. It's almost a bottle movie. Uh, it takes place entirely in an apartment complex. And we never leave for the entire movie. We're in this apartment complex. And there's three characters there. There's Sophia Loren as a Italian housewife. There's Marcello Mastriani as a uh, bachelor uh, who's not going to the parade. And there's an old woman who is the concierge of the building who is also not going to the parade because she needs to stay home and take care of the building. But she listens to the whole thing on the radio. And that radio of this rally, parade, party, that radio plays through the entire movie and comes in and out. We hear pieces of it throughout the entire movie. And the movie is about these the housewife and the bachelor becoming friends over the course of this one day while this rally is going on. Yeah, now a couple to take a step back here is A Special Day came out in 1977. It's an Italian movie yeah. directed by Ettore Scola, a famous Italian filmmaker. I've not seen his movies, but he, he was a kind of a genre specialist. Yeah, he also wrote a ton of movies. He did, and he was, but he was also involved in, um, he grew up and lived through fascist Italy. And yes. he knew uh, Fellini, and they like kind of worked at the same newspaper. Yep. And so he understood the events of that moment, which is, again, it ties back into wanting to see movies that were made by filmmakers who might have actually been alive to understand yeah. things in a, in, a, in a way that filmmakers today, uh, and this is going to be just a quick little segue, but I just want to make a point that I feel like it's going to be very difficult for any filmmaker. Like, say, if I was making a film, I'm, I'm 52, if I'm going to make a movie that's set in that time period. And I guess we could look at David O. Russell making Amsterdam. He wasn't alive then. Yeah. And so any filmmaker today that makes a movie about that period, they could maybe do research, but they didn't have the ability to experience. And so yeah. what I think actually is very successful about Quentin Tarantino's and Glorious Bastards is he knows that he wasn't alive there and he couldn't do right. justice if he told a movie that was to take the subject matter like very seriously. Right. In, in the only way he probably felt you can take this movie is turn it into a weird fantasy cartoon uh, because he doesn't have any business making a movie that <laughs> other, any other way. Well, and in a way, Inglorious Bastards is a movie about movies about that. Right. So yeah. it's sort of it's it's about how those that reality has been filtered through our culture. Yeah. So now it's a special day. I, I I didn't have a lot of um I didn't have a lot of background on that. And so I'm interested to see a film that's gonna talk about this particular day and knowing what kind of budgets an Italian film had in yeah. the seventies. How do you go about doing that? And then you just described how they do it. It's very fascinating. You feel the experience of what was going on and that excitement and just how invested the entire country was in that moment, yeah. but without ever having to see it. Exactly. Yeah. You get the newsreel footage and that's it. And then you get- Well, you see the people leaving for the leaving for the festivities yes. and coming back. And you actually, the way their costumes and that, I feel like those moments are very effective to give you a visual sense. Yes. And the entire place empties out all at once, you know, and her, she has, you know, seven kids, I think. And 
the opening scene is her getting up in the morning and getting her entire family ready to go to this. And then she's expected to stay home and clean the house. But uh, she gets everyone dressed from the littlest kid up through her husband, all ages in between, and sends them all off. And the whole building, everyone just empties out of this building to go off to this rally. And and you just see that it's not um, it's not just a few people that were into this, right? It's the, you know, entire, it's the entire country was invested yes, in this. Exactly. And, and there is some of that same peer pressure going on in that opening sequence when they're leaving the building. There's old women gossiping about people. There's You get the idea that kind of you would be looked down upon if you didn't go out to the parade. Well, yeah. So Sophia Loren, she kind of like is hiding in her house. She, this was, you know, again, this is a movie of reveals, right? So throughout yeah. the movie, you learn more about the characters in surprising ways. Um, and this movie's from 77. So, I mean, if we have to spoil anything, it, look, I mean, that's just yeah. 77, 40 plus years. <laughs> that's just how We're, it goes. What? Yeah. So her character the, what you learn is that she's just as big a fan of Mussolini as, as anybody else. She's not allowed to go because her husband's basically making her stay there to clean the house and get dinner ready for when they come back. But she would love to be there. She would love to be there. And it's there were times early in the movie where I thought, oh, she's kind of apolitical. But no, not at all. She is super political. She loves Mussolini. And one of the things she loves about him is his masculinity. And this masculine idea is another sort of integral part of fascism. And I think it's brilliantly played. Like you just said, the husband expects her to stay home and get the dinner ready. Well, that's that sort of patriarchal idea is very fascist. It's very tightly connected to fascism that women uh, should be doing this specific gender role and that men should be doing this gender role. And that hierarchy of gender is part of the ideology yeah and uh, you know so her character as you go along you discover that she has a, a scrapbook of all the great yes. things that mussolini's done and it's her scrapbook which surprises this neighbor marcello mastriani who accidentally kind of comes into um, a relationship with her throughout the the movie because of a bird yeah. that gets loose and he is surprised because he thinks it's amusing because he doesn't uh, he doesn't really support uh, Mussolini. He thinks the scrapbook must belong to one of her children, and then he's surprised to discover that it's actually her that's the fan. Well, yeah, and he's surprised because he sees her as kind of being apolitical, right, and not really that invested in what's going. He he sees her as just a housewife, right? But he see, but he I think he's surprised that oh she must have stayed home because she wanted to stay home because right. she doesn't really want to be there for that rally. Yeah, and she really does want to be there for that rally. But yet, while she loves fa- while she seems to love fascism, right? At least when she speaks, there are these amazing moments when a ring at the doorbell or a knock on the door sends a panic in her eyes yes. knowing that you don't know who's going to show up at the door and that that those little moments tell you so much about what the atmosphere is like for these italian families which it ties into what you were saying about all the gossip going on yes right everybody's watching you and the yeah and the gossip is totalitarian right it's People are informing on each other, and it's combined with that peer pressure and social pressure that, yeah, who's ringing the bell? And it's and that old woman, what is she going to say? And who's she going to tell that maybe 
she had this bachelor over to her apartment during the day. I keep calling him a bachelor. I think that's probably the best description for what you think his character is at the beginning. Well, well so okay, now that's a great moment to, to talk about. There's, there's some built-in intrigue in the casting of this movie yes. that adds to the kind of under, the, the, another level to understanding this film. Sophia Loren was noted as one of the most beautiful women in the world. And yes. she has, she didn't even want to take the- I met her once. You did? Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm kind of shocked by that. Um, I was not expecting that. You're dropping yep. some bombs on me. Yep. I met Sophia Loren. That's that's fantastic. Um, yeah. So she didn't want to originally take the role because she was very concerned that she was looking, she's too beautiful. She didn't want to look yeah. unattractive. And you can still, like Sophia Loren, she still shines out no matter how unattractive they're trying to make her and frumpy yeah, housewife. She does. But, yeah. but they do a great job so that they're playing against type. Here's the most gorgeous woman in, in Italy. She's like an icon. And, and at yeah. that time, icon, you know, aging, but she's allowing herself to play someone of her age as a housewife, very unglamorous. And then when we talk about this masculinity and the ideas that her character, Antoinetta, has about masculine types, you cast the most famous yeah. Italian actor in the entire planet, Marcello Mastriani, who is known as this masculine, gorgeous man who's just, he's what men are. Both of them were just sex symbol, movie stars, glamorous. And they'd been in movies together in the past. There's a built-in, like when audiences would go, you know, that's built in like, oh, I'm seeing Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastriani yeah. and he plays Gabrielle. Uh, he is a... Uh, radio announcer, but famous, famous radio announcer in Rome who is on leave from his yeah. uh, job. And of course, as you discover throughout the course of the movie, he was let go. And then even more, he seems to, at one point at the beginning of the movie, he, he looks like he's going to commit suicide. Yes. But he's interrupted. Yeah, he's interrupted. He's getting all his affairs in order. And clearly either for suicide or something else. We find out, yeah, he is interrupted uh, when he's about to commit suicide, but he's there's something else going on that we find out at the end of the film that he's preparing for. Yeah, now mind you, I... I guess it's, you know, I've seen so many movies. I didn't find that part surprising, and that's okay to spoil it because it doesn't, to me, maybe at the time you'd be surprised if you knew nothing about the movie. Yeah, I wasn't surprised. It. Yeah. I wasn't surprised, but his character, and it's revealed through the movie, he is a gay man, and it was discovered. And at first, it was one of those things where it's, like, it's almost like a don't ask, don't tell. You have a card that yeah. says I'm straight <laughs> and that would sort of pass for a while until then the Italy government clashed down on that. Yeah. Well, and there's a few, the way he describes why he was fired changes slightly, right? Or why he's put on leave. One of the reasons he gives is that he's a socialist, but the first reason he gives her is that his voice was not masculine enough. Right. And that's a tip off. Yeah, and that's a tip-off, yeah. That he's, in fact, gay. Yes. And again, 1977, I mean, the movie takes place in 1938, but think about it. 1977, unless it's a caricature, you didn't really have a portrayal of a sympathetic gay character who was just a person. It, well, especially with a with an actor like this, right? With that actor, it caused, it caused, it caused a lot of controversy, believe it or not, back then. Yeah. Uh, people were outraged that Marcello Mastriani was to be playing a gay man. Like, that's how could that yeah. be? 
and of course she falls in in, in the course of, a, of of several encounters over the course of a day she falls for this man and and you have to buy into that but part of it yeah. is their their chemistry throughout and their interplay is really amazingly strong it is yeah well and also they're in this very unique situation and there's a sort of an unreality to the fact that it's kind of a bottle movie in terms of time and location. And she's desperate. She's desperate for love. That's really what it yeah. is. And she sees this person as an outlet to give her love and respect. Because he's actually, he's interested in her as a person. Yes. And he shows her respect. And that is what is attracting her to him, besides the fact that he's he's amazing well it's because he's not part of this uh traditional hierarchy of gender roles in, yeah. in the same way he sees her differently he's also just you know charming and playful there's that scene where he's riding the scooter around in the apartment and that's a, that is a fantastic moment by the way yeah yeah and this movie is filled with fantastic moments and i think you know it's it's about fascism again in pretty much every scene is in some way the more i learn about the fascism the more i keep coming back to this movie because i realize how integrated it is in every scene even though it's not necessarily explicitly about it in the way that mortal storm is like this doesn't play like a propaganda film well i mean again when we start to look at our country and we're old enough, right, to actually remember yeah. a difference. Uh, and I'm, I am going to make a point on, that that will that will come through. <laughs> I promise. Is that you know we know Democrats, Republicans, and as we grew up and started understanding the differences, we kind of decided, well, what what are we more? However, this has changed dramatically over the course. And I would say again, when I look at nine eleven, it was changing before that, no doubt. Yeah. However, a huge market shift in dividing the country into what the left and the right are and actually putting a, a, a sort of a, a brand on it that you then have to, and I think more so on the right than on the left. The left maybe is a catch-all for like liberal values, which I don't think even a lot of people right. who like to call themselves liberals consider stuff that they typically like. And that's where you're getting a lot of like the older white male crowd who always considered themselves the liberal Democrat is now like, oh, I don't know. Why can't I just say what I want to say, even if it sounds a little racist? But on the Republican side, it's becoming more and more that you have to believe in all of these things. And now it's becoming harder for each side to like the other, especially where you, you're you demonizing each side. And now it's just becoming a struggle. I find myself hard to find any common ground with somebody who would consider themselves a today Republican based on what that party's become. And both sides are calling the other one fascist. I don't even think that is that the, the Republicans, and clearly most people don't even understand at all what a Nazi is. When they call right. someone on the left Nazis, that's completely ridiculous because by its very nature, the Nazi party was a far right organization. <laughs> They're not yeah. left in any way, shape, or form. So by that fact, you can't, it just, it's an oxymoron. It makes no sense. Well, okay. But there's, if you look up fascism on Wikipedia, the first sentence or two will say it's a right-wing ideology. 
Well, there's a lot of conservatives on the internet who say that Wikipedia is biased liberal propaganda because <laughs> right. oh, because it defines fascism as right wing. Right. So now we take it back to the mortal storm and that blood argument, right? You see? Yes. It, right. Because what happens is when when somebody who kind of has these crazy beliefs, when they're confronted with the reality that their beliefs make no sense, that almost just it just reinforces, it doubles down, and they need to then go back to their hive. That will make yes. them feel better. And sometimes they recognize that, yeah, it's not true. But in order to get to whatever new new utopia that we want to create, we're going to have to put aside that stuff. And that's what's the danger. Yes. And I was thinking that – and this is where my I was saying I was going to make a point. Yeah. And again, it ties in this 9-11. We had this uh, mass shooting at that uh, the gay nightclub in Colorado yes. a few weeks ago. And the person who committed this crime is 22 years old. Yeah. Which means their entire life, they've grown up under what I feel is that new way. They don't have that sense of history of how things were before. It's just after for them. And it's only one example, but it's concerning to me that there's generations growing up that what what the effect of all of these events are having on them and you know, what kind of country are we heading into in the future? And again, this is why I'm kind of watching these movies because yeah. you need to understand the past to avoid the present or the future. Well, and the fact that it wasn't just like all of a sudden, hey, be a Nazi or not, right? This, There were all these sociopolitical, economic factors and it sort of crept up on people, right? Like both Mussolini and Hitler sort of came about through democratic means. They were parties that, you know, gained seats in the government through elections. Well, and this is why the January 6th is such an important moment and concerning yes. is that there were people that were willing to just step away from what our constitution and our democratic process is supposed to be to just achieve what they wanted as far as putting someone in power. And the danger is that there are powerful people in this country that were more than willing to let that happen, some of which are still in Congress today. <laughs> Absolutely, they are. Again, I promise you, if you find this subject matter interesting, we are going to get back. We have so many movies that we want to talk about. I mean, so many fantastic yeah. ones, ones that have like we had never seen, even though we knew about, and they've blown us away. Uh, and we won't be able to talk about them here, but there's a couple of just technical things that I want to say about a special day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that opening shot. You talk about the opening shot, but here's what I want to say is that this movie, A Special Day, did I watch? Yeah, I did I watch it and tell you or did you watch it and you told me? Oh, no, I watched it and told you. Yeah. Uh, this movie was on. You know, we had discussed some movies that I thought we should be watching. You watched this and it had been in my like criterion um, yeah. queue forever. And it truly is for me a special movie. I mean, to say that by the well, end that's of what I film, said. I I didn't want to tell you too much about it. I just said you have to watch it. It's a very special movie. It floored me. It stayed with me. It's changed me. It's the reason why I love movies. It's a film that I think has kind of been forgotten. I mean, not by people who probably saw it then, and anybody who ever sees this movie won't forget it. But I think that right. if you're a film goer who's like you know. 30 or, or, or earlier, the chances of you ever hearing about this movie is uh, pretty slim. Um, and that's why we hope that we reach people 
of different ages who are hearing this and say, I got to check this special day movie out because I guarantee you yeah. won't be disappointed. But one of the things, and this is where I, I, I'm going to segue into for you to talk about um, from a color standpoint, there's a cinematography by this cinematographer, Pasqualino DeSantes, and he shot and won an Oscar, I think it was for uh, 1968's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. The Zeffirelli version. And they do something that is so interesting with the cinematography. And again, when you're dealing with those very vibrant colors um, that were so important to the thematics of Mussolini's fascism and Hitler's Nazism, those colors are very symbolic. And of course, movies that were set in this time period were usually black and white, like the newsreel footage at the beginning. Right. But what they decide to do is a whole, it almost looks like, it, it, it's not, but it looks like flashed film. It was all done in right. uh, processing where they strip away through photochemical process a lot of the color and you end up with a very auburn, goldenish uh, color film. But it's not sepia tone. No, it's not. It has a sepia color, sepia look. Right, but the other colors are there. Like, he's wearing a red sweater vest throughout the movie. And in certain lighting, it looks red. And in certain lighting, it looks black. It's such a fantastic way of approaching it. And then when you do see all these symbols of Nazis and, and, and Mussolini and you see those colors. It's- well, right at the beginning, there's a there's a giant red Nazi flag unspooled at the beginning. And it's the red is just barely there. Yeah. And so you're already engaged by this very interesting approach to shooting a movie that you're going to have to deal with pretty much just two characters, almost like a play. And that my knock yeah. on movies today, when you have that kind of material, it sometimes feels like a play. You have to find a way to make it cinematic. And this director, Ettore Scalala, and Pasqualino DeSantes do so many fantastic things. And now I want you to just mention this opening shot you were just saying about. Yeah, and it's not the first shot, but it's sort of the beginning of the story shot. And because it's after the newsreel and it's after the sort of some shots of the apartment building, it's the first shot of her in her apartment. And it's her, as I mentioned earlier, getting everyone ready for the parade. And I don't know how, is this a seven minute shot? I can't remember. (laughs) I didn't time it, but it's a single take. It's very long. It's so active. There is the blocking in this is so complex, not to mention there's kids involved in it, (laughs) like putting clothes on children during this single take. And it's the chaos of the house, but she's kind of at the center of it all. And it's going on around her. And yeah, it's just the chaos of everyone getting ready in the morning. But you could take any frame of it and it's beautiful. It's just so cinematic all throughout this shot. And it doesn't feel like a play but the whole movie doesn't feel like a play like you just mentioned that you know on a shot by shot basis this movie the editing the framing everything is so cinematic and so masterfully done to explore the tension the tenderness and the emotional lives of these characters in I mean, at at no point does it feel like a play or does it feel like it's just two people having a conversation, even though the entire movie is just two people having a conversation. Okay, you're you're killing me. And you know why you're killing me? 
because you wanted to talk about this opening shot, but you missed the whole big point of it was the fact that it starts on the ground and somehow the camera goes up like on a crane up to her apartment. Into the window. Into the window. And then, you know, then it's moving in like in, in, and you're having action in the, the, the scene for a long time. This is no, there's no CGI in 1977. This is like. No, I, I was watching this going, how did they do that? Because it, it looks, there's no steady cam either. This was a real building they shot in. And that means yes. the lighting outside. And then not only have to move all that, but like the lighting inside and the exposure. So someone's having to pull focus and exposure at the same time to make this all work. Meanwhile, you're all over the apartment. So there's no place to hide the lights. So I heard an interview with Pascalina DeSantes on Criterion. Yeah. I think it was Criterion. Uh, or maybe it was online talking about this shot. And they said like, it was the great thing about, and it may have been the director. I, it may have been a Tori Scola talking about it. He says, it was the great thing. We had these amazing grips and you talk about, well, this is what we want to do. And they're like, all right, let us figure it out. Wow. That's the thing is anytime, cause he knew he wanted to do interesting things. So they just yeah. knew that they had really good, crew and that if you gave them the task they would figure out what they needed to be done and then you yeah. would do it the way the, the crew you just have to have a trust in a good crew and have, wow. and have trust that they will understand what you want to do and not you trying to like micromanage what needs to happen right and i thought that was fascinating <laughs> the final shot of the movie mirrors it and is also outside at night and comes into the apartment through the window and follows her into the bedroom and yeah, just just stunning. The, the other thing I want to say about the um, the look of the film in terms of that washed out sepia, whatever you want to call it, low color, uh, is that I imagine that that did not age well. And so had I seen this movie in the 90s, uh, it may have looked kind of worn out and not it, it, it. But the fact is, this movie was restored in, I think, 2014. I can understand why is because here's the the problem is that how that was done. Now, I don't know whether or not then it got moved into a negative, but the right. labs they worked, they worked with like a Technicolor lab in. Yeah. Italy that doesn't exist anymore and everything was right. about timing and a process so there was a whole thing to the prints so I can imagine that there would probably be a lot of varying in prints and yes. you probably can't just photochemically recreate that for new prints well exactly yeah so I think that might be part of the reason why the movie disappeared for a number of years I mean I can't recall it ever really playing like again special day how i knew about it because i always pay attention to like movies that got nominated for oscars i saw that yeah. Mar marcello mastriani was nominated in 1977 and that's rare because not a lot of you know right. foreign films got nominated for their acting and the winner that year was richard dreyfus for the goodbye girl and that's interesting because it's a comedic <laughs> yeah. performance and it's very good yeah. and great news nominated but you know what now i've seen all five of those nominees and to me the absolute best performance out of those five is marcello mastriani's performance in a special day it's fantastic well yeah so this movie it's just an incredible i i had not heard of it before I think I I'd, like maybe heard the title at some point, but it's definitely not a movie that comes up in the message boards that I hang out on. <laughs> you don't you don't hang out right. on those special day boards. 
Well, no, I mean, it, like, I don't hear critics talking about it. Like, I just, I do not, I've not heard this movie mentioned as, you know, something, a classic you should check out. And it is a classic you should check out. Well, that's why we're doing this program. We're trying to, yeah. you know what I mean? We, we really do try to to scour and, and see a movie that we've never seen before. Cause we're never, we're the first to admit that we haven't seen everything. And uh, right. sometimes it's hard to find stuff, but when we do, and it's as good as this film, to me, it makes it all worthwhile. Absolutely. It, it, you know, sometimes you go into these movies and you, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to get exactly because there's not a huge, you know, there are reviews of this movie, but there's not a lot of critical work on it. And, and then you watch it and are completely blown away. And it is, you're digging around and then you find diamonds. And this is one of them. This is an absolute gem of a movie that I've watched a lot of movies about fascism now. And I keep coming back to this one. Like I said, uh, it just, my thoughts keep returning to it. You said you felt changed by it. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really powerful movie that, doesn't hit you over the head and i mean it's 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 a charming movie about two charming characters but it's so dark at the same it's and there's so many layers to it it's such a complex and beautifully made movie that it really needs to be seen and talked about and thought about yeah now you know again Kids, we're running a little bit of late on uh, time in the program. And again, like I said, we, we have so many more movies that we want to discuss and bring in other angles. And maybe this first discussion, we had to kind of lay the groundwork. So now yeah. in future episodes, we may be able to talk about a few more movies because we'll run into some of the similar themes. Uh, I will just mention sort of a, a preview for when we do get back to fascism. There was a second film that we saw hot on the heels of this one that both of yeah. us had known about. It's very famous, but I I don't think a lot of people have seen it these days. And when when I say I was changed and floored by a special day, I was like, I was just hit with a hammer on this movie. I couldn't believe what I watched. Yeah. And that is Lena Waltmuller's, uh, she was the first woman director ever nominated by the Academy for uh, Seven Beauties, a movie I'd heard the name uh, many times. I'd actually tried to start it a few times and I just, I don't know, I wasn't really right in the mood to watch it. And because of this uh, subject matter, we both took on this movie. And when I talk about a movie has changed me, I am never going to forget watching this film. So we're going to talk about that next time. We will talk about that next time. And that's why I'm looking forward to more episodes because there are these films that just challenge you on that subject matter. I mean, I think I think Mortal Storm, everyone should check out if they can find it uh, because yeah. it's a great basis uh, of reminding us of like what was happening and that people did know what was happening. Um, but then if you really want to have different perspectives on tough subject matter, you, you get into a film like uh, Seven Beauties that explores uh, what was happening <laughs> during the war in a way different <laughs> manner than I've well, ever seen. Well, before the war, during the war, it, it covers, you know, probably a 10-year period. Yeah. Because it even covers after the war. Uh, yeah, very little, but yes. So that's a movie that, again, maybe uh, before we can get, and we may not be getting back to fascism on film for a little bit um, because we've got some other things coming up, but, you know, now maybe is a chance for you to also watch 
uh, seven beauties so that when we yeah. do talk about it, you're a little bit on the know. Um, and then anything we reveal, it won't be a surprise to you. So that's my encouragement to you <laughs> to watch seven beauties uh, between now and like, you know, maybe January, we'll get back and do another episode of that. I feel like we kind of laid some groundwork here uh, in terms of what the theme is and how we're approaching it and, you know, sort of what fascism is. But this is a really interesting topic that I think is uh, is timely, has been addressed through cinema for a long time and for 80 years. And it's it's worth talking about. It's just, it's fascinating. It's disturbing. It's life-affirming at times. And I think that's important. I mean, again, you can mix in some of this with your Marvel is basically what we're yes. saying. You know, you got to be well-rounded and see things. And sometimes film, you know, sometimes film can make, get you thinking. It can maybe change perspectives um, when it's done right. And I don't think we get as many thought-provoking movies anymore that, that that would be unfair to say that we don't get any it just we don't get as many well we did just have tar well that's why we spent a whole you know 50 <laughs> yeah. minutes talking to that because there was a lot to really dissect um but anyways thanks people for staying with us uh hopefully our next episode will be a look at steven spielberg and hopefully we'll have a little fun with that uh trying to see this Fableman's movie, but uh, Universal Studios <laughs> isn't making it very easy for us. And we'll get into that probably on that episode. So hopefully uh, the next episode will be that, but uh, you know, that could get delayed. We'll see, but we will be back for another episode before, uh, you know, the new year. Sounds great. All right. Goodbye there, Tilsey. Bye-bye. <laughs>